Let us turn to 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, where I'll read verses 1 through 12. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our lord the king may be warm. So they sat, sought for a lovely young woman, throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And uh, the, the, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good-looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of uh, Jeriah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rej, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Sohiloth, which is by Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty, and the mighty men, or, or Solomon his brother. Now, Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please let me now give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on thy throne. Well, let us uh, bless the Lord from this uh, scripture and consider it as we we work our way through it now uh, in a sermonic form. I came across a scripture two weeks ago that uh, just caught my eye, having to do with the ministry of Elisha. And as I thought about that and thought how much fun that would be to preach on that theme, I thought to myself, you know, there are a lot of other of these famous stories in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, that um, you've not dealt with. And uh, I was looking for, a, I was anticipating a new sermon series anyway after our series on Amos. And so I thought, why not, uh, why not do this? And so Earlier this week, I went through and laid out the sermons for the next couple months, let's see, uh, next two and a half months, and uh, so we will be working our way through that. I've just found a number. I'm not going to preach sequentially all the way through Kings this time. Uh, I want to I want to do a little hop skipping and jumping through it, to, but I'm going to focus on some of the major incidents that God gives us here, because... Uh, <clears throat> As I say in the sermon outline that's in your bulletin, the books of 1 and 2 Kings bring us a theological chronicle 
of Solomon's reign, that's uh, chapters 1 through 11, the reigns of Israel and Judah in the divided kingdom, uh, that's uh, 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 verses uh, 12, I guess I missed that, 12 uh, through uh, Second Kings, it goes into Second Kings, and, uh, and then thirdly, the reign of Ju Ju Judah until the Babylonian captivity. And so this, these two books give us Israel's history, and it's broken up in these three parts, going along with the major developments in Israel. First of all, they started out together, um, going in the same direction, united. Uh, that was under David and Solomon, but then they divided, and they were between the north and the south, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then finally, the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria, and the people there were taken off of their land and, uh, and uh, taken into a captivity uh, that then that presaged or forecast the later captivity that would be happen with Judah. And so the, some of these major markers of Christian or church history in the Old Testament, in terms of the Old Testament kingdom, are marked out here in the book of Kings. And... And it shows us that God, God shows us his care and uh, his working through these three stages of the kingdom. And in dealing with Amos that we just went well through, Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So all of his prophecies about the, the sin and the degradation of faith and practice in the northern kingdom, we've just dealt with that. But that, that this is sort of the background to that and how, how that happened. And so... Uh, it starts out here dealing with the passing of David, the passing of the mantle of his regal rule over to Solomon, his son. Now, the thing is, the thing that First and Second Kings really brings out, it's a book in a sense, it's about politics. It's about the political rule of Israel and the twists and the turns and the ebbs and the flows of their political system against the shadow of the rule of the Lord. You can call it, in a sense, a holy history. Holy history. And as we work our way through this, and as we see the different developments, we see it especially here in this first chapter, as we see the, the, the shadow that God casts over this people and how all of their political events, their, their developments, um, their their uh, their rises and their falls. All of these things are done over and against, or they're talked about over and against the existence of God and the rule of God in the background. And that's why I call it a holy history. There's a there's a shadow that is cast over history in this sense. Now, this is exactly the reason I uh, emphasize this at the beginning is this is exactly what we lack. In our modern day, when you approach history or when you approach mathematics or when you approach uh, some other development of business or culture, there is an allergy amongst modern people to seeing the shadow of the Lord uh, covering them, e evaluating them as they go. Uh, I think that most people today would think it kind of impudent of the Lord to disagree with our modern politics or disagree with our political thoughts or our decisions that are made by our leaders and our kings. But it was not so in this book. 
And everything that the, everything that proceeds, it proceeds against the question: Is the was the Lord really in this? What, what, what were you doing? Why were you doing what you did? Was it out of the love of God, or was it uh, something that just came out of your own mind? It was a self-sustained, self-created kind of a thought or idea. And you see, God is calling us by these things. He's, he's telling us we shouldn't just go about our lives in a secular fashion. The word secular means something that is outside the temple or outside the place where the, the, the glory of God is really seen. And God wants us, as we live, God wants us to see our lives under the shadow of his name. That's why in the first commandment he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other values. Thou shalt have no other goods uh, in terms of, uh, of elevated goals to which you work and you live. Thou shalt have nothing outside of the shadow of the living God, outside of, outside of Jehovah God. And that's a wonderful, wonderful sense. That's what Calvin meant in the Reformers when they, they used the phrase Coram Deo, which in Latin means uh, in the presence of God. Coram, C-O-R-A-M, I think it is, and then Deum, D-E-U-M. Coram Deo, in the presence of the Lord. And Calvin said our whole lives are lived Coram Deo, in the presence of the Lord. And so here, uh, as we look at these kings, the, the, the process that, where, where it went from the, the full development of the kingdom under David, uh, then to the dissolution, the, the breakup of the kingdom, and then, then to the, the dissolution, first of Israel, northern Israel, and then finally of Judah. And all the prophets that came to speak to them. Here we have the holy history that God wants us to think about for ourselves. And, uh, you know, you may not be a king or a queen. Few of us are, especially in America, where those things are foreign. But we, are, we all have our sovereignties, don't we? We all have our families. We all have those things over which we are in charge. And the Westminster Confession, in its study of the Fifth Commandment, teaches us how all of these things, all of these offices and their responsibilities are all under the sovereignty of God. And we must continually ask ourselves, uh, God, is this what you uh, want me to do? Am I walking in your way? And even when we don't know for sure that we are walking in the way of the Lord, we're to ask that question and we're to live acknowledging that we are under his sovereignty. And so if we see ourselves doing something wrong, if we see ourselves taking a turn or we discover that we made a wrong turn, then we're supposed to recognize it and repent and change directions and continuing to ask the Lord to bless us in the way of our walk. And so we have this, uh, we have this in the book of Kings generally, and we have this in the first chapter. Now, uh, the Bible just covers the craziest things sometimes. And the first thing it covers here in the book of Kings is the, the demise of, of King David. King David is getting old. This is setting the, the ground for uh, Adonijah to, uh, and Solomon and his sons to think, who? Who would ascend unto the throne next? And, uh, but the idea is that in verse 5, when Adonijah is brought up, he's brought up because of the first four verses where it's showing the weakness of David. Now, none of us want to grow old and infirm, but it happens to the best of us. It doesn't matter whether you're a millionaire, a billionaire, a king or a queen or whatever. You are going to grow old. All men uh, die, the Bible says, because of, the, of Adam's sin. 
And so we might as well prepare for it. Um, one of the things that I, in my work in the hospital, one of the things that I will encourage people with when, they're, when they have received word that they are headed for a hospice or not going to survive something, I, I, will, I will remind them that, they, that this is not something unique with them. Even as it's shocked them, even as it's arrested their attention and probably brought great consternation down upon their souls, even in that prospect or even in that uh, situation, they are simply one of millions of people who have lived and gone and followed this same route. The amazing thing is that with the idea that we will all die, that more people don't take concerning consideration of it, that they don't prepare for it. And that finding out that the God Almighty has provided a way for them to have eternal life, that they had disregarded this and dismissed it and, uh, and not brought it to the forefront of their minds. What is more foolish if you know you're going to crash than to prepare for that crash? What is more foolish than that? How can, we not, uh, how can we not prepare ourselves and be ready for that day? So here we see David, and he's old, and uh, this first, uh, this first uh, vignette of his life explains to us how, how weary and how feeble he was getting. His body could no longer keep himself warm. And so he was covered up with blankets, uh, he, 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 he did everything he could. The, the, his counselors around him were taking care. They could see the weakness of the king. Uh, he, was, he was losing it. Now, we, we, we see the, the, the great and terrible degree of his, uh, his uh, confusion with the story of Abishag. Uh, the, the people were concerned about the king. They couldn't find any way to keep him warm. And so they finally consulted among themselves and they thought that here, this is what we can do. We can find a young virgin who will simply lay with him in bed and uh, she'll serve him when she's up, but when he needs to be warmed, she will lay with him body to body and, uh, and uh, that will help to keep the king alive. Now, the degree of David's confusion is seen that uh, he did nothing sexually with Abishag. It says that he did not know her. Now, for a, for a man to be in bed with a beautiful young woman and not have any kind of sexual acknowledgement, that is uh, it's either miraculous or, in this case, David was in bad, bad shape. And that's the case. And, and this, this is an extraordinary picture for us, but it's to illustrate the fact that David was in bad shape. I'll never forget, uh, I, uh, I used to be a, a young man that lived within the the environs of R.C. Sproul was before he became real famous and went to Ligonier and that sort of thing. But uh, I'll never forget the day that he, he had read this in his Bible and he came in and he was, he was uh, trying to entertain the rest of us with this amazing story of how of Abishag and, and David and uh, R.C. had a, a kind of a ruddy uh, personality sometimes and uh, he found great amusement in, in, what had, in what had happened here. And I pass that along both so that you might understand him better and so that you might not think that you are more righteous than the, than the scriptures. Uh, uh, because the scriptures bring us some of these strange things and uh, therefore our benefit. But anyway, David was in bad shape. He really didn't know what was going on anymore. He was barely with it. Now, what, what's, what's extraordinary and what happens then between Nathan and, and uh, Bathsheba 
we, we count it a great grace, a great mercy on the part of God that, that his brain was able to be awakened enough to, to, find, to find out the circumstances here of Adonijah and that he, he called to mind, his feeble mind, he called to mind that he had, he had uh, stated already in his life that Solomon would be the son that would be anointed king after him. And so God, in his mercy, brings David through this stupor and uh, through the almost unconscious state, the non-responsive state that he was in, he brings them out so that he can, in one last moment of grace, uh, David brings some sanity and some direction to the land of Israel at this time. And so uh, we see that's the setting for what Adonijah did. And uh, as I say, I say, as I say in the first point of the sermon here, uh, that's in your in your bulletin, uh, the Bible relates these two these two things. In other words, the government, the kingdom, and then what's going on behind it. The Bible relates these two better and without any embarrassment against what our modern historians think. The universities would just uh, would not only balk, but they would have a fit if they were forced. to in their history courses to give some acknowledgement to the living God and to the fact that he is more significant in human history, human history, not American history, not Christian history, but human history. The Lord God Almighty is more important than all to all of the history of the world than uh, any other God, any other human being, uh, etc. And so uh, we see that coming forth very much in this as it develops. So in verse 5, after the humiliation of David's old age, we see that there was a political vacuum that's explained by the first four verses. And in that political vacuum, uh, Adonijah stepped forward. And the words here are very uh, illuminating spiritually as it talks about Adonijah. Then Adonijah, son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be a king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time, saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother was born, had born him after Absalom. And then he conferred with Joab, the son of uh, Zariah, who was the, one of the chief military men, with Abiathar, the priest, who was one of the great priests of Israel at the time. And they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, uh, Rej, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So in these few words, they don't sound like they are talking about any great conspiracy or insurrection. But in these words, subtle as they are, they explain what was going on. In the vacuum, one of the sons of David, uh, Adonijah, had ambition to be king. Now, we know that before him, that his, his brother, his half-brother, uh, Absalom, also had these ambitions. And we know that Absalom created a civil war that almost, uh, well, it did divide Judah for a time, while Judah and uh, Israel, it did divide them for a while, but then David was given the victory, he was given the advantage, military advantage, and he he won the battle, and he, he obtained the kingdom through the help of the Lord. But these two, these two sons, first Absalom and then Adonijah, these were favorite sons of David. 
they say the Bible says that uh, that Absalom was a favorite son of him, and uh, it appears that Adonijah, his his half brother, was also a favorite son. Uh, we note here that these these different brothers, along with Solomon, uh, were were problematic because David, while doing so many things right, had whether through official institutional marriages to make treaties and that sort of thing, or uh, whether through his own uh, sexual attraction to other women, he had been, he had, he had almost so many of these sons he'd had by different women. And if you turn back to Second Samuel 3 and read verses 2 and following, it's really kind of a sad uh, recollection of what, of where these, some of these boys came from. The sons were born to David in Hebron. Now, this is just the sons that were born in Hebron. So Solomon is not mentioned here as he was born before that. Um, uh, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitis. So she was from Jezreel. His second son, Chileab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, uh, Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, a king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, who we're talking about here in this passage, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Sephatile, the daughter, the son of Abba, Abba. And then, and the sixth, Itrium, by David's wife, Iglah. And they were born to David in Hebron. These were not the only sons, but this is just one passage where it mentions Adonijah and it mentions these other women. So um, one of the one of the blessings of monogamy, uh, having one wife, bearing all of your children through the wife of your youth, the wife of your love. One of the blessings of that is that it it keeps such political wranglings, even if it's one of the family, down to a minimum. Uh, there's more unity, there's more blessing. David, uh, in the glory of his kingship, and one of these women that I just read, read about was, uh, was a, a, f- a foreign woman who, who had a relationship to another kingdom. So we know that that was a marriage of convenience to help the political uh, fair of that day. But the bottom line is that uh, this, was not, this was not according to God's will, not according to God's declaration, and it led to all kinds of problems, one of which is the story that we're reading today, whereas, whereas all, uh, D- David had, uh, had said that he, he understood from God that Solomon was to be the anointed son. But here he is in his weakness, in his death, and uh, in the weakness and the vacuum that is there, um, the vacuum picks up uh, a lot of political dirt. And in, in this case, Adonijah with his ambition, began to work. You notice also these other, some of these other men, like uh, uh, like uh, Joab, the priest, uh, the son of uh, Zariah, who was a military, who was one of the generals, Abiathar, the priest. Uh, if you read back in the biographies of these men, they all did, they all were worthy in many ways. Joab led to many victories for Israel in their battles against the pagans around them. Abiathar the priest had helped David when he was running from uh, Absalom. So these these people were, were had done many things right. But now at a critical point in Israel's history, 
they succumbed to this guy, this Adonijah, who the Bible says he, he was a good-looking fellow. He reminds us of Saul, King Saul, who was good, good-looking, uh, taller, head taller than his brothers in Israel, and yet he did not have a heart for God. And so these men allowed themselves, they took their gifts, and instead of inquiring of the Lord and saying, what is thy will, O Lord? Is this really what we should do? Is this an alliance we should make? They allied themselves with Adonijah because he looked good. He was vital. He was a, he was a, a handsome young man, and he was one of David's sons. So the alliance was made, but it was a worldly alliance. Brothers and sisters, we can make many of these worldly alliances. Sometimes people make them uh, haphazardly in marriage. A sad day that is when a believer uh, uh, connects himself with an unbeliever. We make these alliances sometimes in business. We know that there's dangers there. It is better it is better to be humble about one's life and take things one step at a time. And uh, if uh, promotions or whatever come to us and we can see that the Lord's hand is in it, then we take them. But brothers and sisters, ambition, personal, uh, egocentric ambition is a very bad thing. And even with such men as Abiathar and Joab, uh, it can wreak havoc upon our lives and bring us to the point where we are warring against brothers, in this case, brothers in Israel, warring against them because of our own ambition, not, not because it was so overwhelmingly ambitious, but simply because it wasn't discreet. And so, uh, so here we have the form, for, formation of a, a great problem. Uh, Adonijah had basically crowned himself king, he was he called the priest to make sacrifice. There's no hint here that he made, he himself made the sacrifices, but he made this he administered called for the sacrifices to be made that would be made if a king was going to be anointed. And so there was a great political mistake that was about to be made. How many of these mistakes are made by our governments today in this modern world without any care and concern? And God in his grace is not so conveniently present to raise up a man like Nathan. But in this case, he does. Now, Nathan, it's very interesting to, to read, the, to see Nathan here in the light of this, uh, the spirituality of the day and the politics of the day. There are very few preachers, there are very few men of the church that are willing or have the insight to enter into the, 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 what we call the cultural life of the nation, of the modern nations. Very few. Uh, some even think it's a sin for them to have a political idea or to, to, to take a political stand. They, only, they, they think it's only, they should only exist within the church. Here is a man, Nathan, who was the preeminent prophet of that day. Uh, Nathan did not make any uh, horrific mistakes. His mind was, was uh, wed to God, and God used him again and again and again in a holy way. And so Nathan sees what's, what's appearing here. There's no, there's no politician to help. There's no one in the, in the culture, in the common culture, that, that understands. But Nathan can see it. He has His theology has, has uh, enlightened his politics. And so he, he, he seizes uh, the situation uh, with uh, the power that God gives him. And he tests that. He goes, he goes, first of all, to Bathsheba, it says, in verse 11. 
he speaks to her. He says to her, come, please let me now give you advice in verse 12, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Because Nathan could see that this political rivalry was going to lead to the death of the probable death of Bathsheba and Solomon. And he knows that the will of God is for Bathsheba and Solomon to be ascendant and not Adonijah. And so he goes and he speaks to her and he says, let me give you advice. He says, go, verse 13, go immediately to King David and say to him, did not, did you not, my Lord, O king, swear to your maidservant saying, assuredly your son Solomon shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And, uh, uh, when she then goes to David, she repeats this exact verse in verse 17. Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. She said, my Lord, did you, did you not swear by the Lord about this? So here's a holy oath that was taken by the king that is brought back to his memory by uh, the stirring or the advice of, of Nathan the prophet. Now, Nathan the prophet was not only... Nathan, he does something here which you may think was underhanded just, just, just because it's developed. You know, in the church, we're not supposed to have develop our thoughts and bring actually plan and strategize with other people about what, where, how the nation will go. So Nathan, he went to Bathsheba, first of all, and he said, he said go to the king and, and ask this. And he said, then, I will come in almost immediately after you and talk about this too, and I'll, I'll strengthen your case. So that uh, in human terms, there would be, you know, the Bible says where two, there are two or three, where there are two or three witnesses, uh, a case can go forward. And so in this case, Nathan, you can, negatively speaking, you can say he plotted. Now there's some people who, who develop an ethic which is neutral, which does not have God in its head, that, that pretends that they can discover a neutral ethic that can be applied in all situations. So they, they might say at this point, well, we shouldn't plot. Well, we shouldn't strategize about these things. We should just let God bring these things to pass. No, God works through our second causes. He works through us. He works what we do through what we do and what we say. And so Nathan, Nathan had, pl had planned this out, <clears throat> but it was a godly plan. You see, uh, we evaluate everything not by some neutral ethic, that says, well, this, this, is, uh, this is equity or this is justice. Our ethics begin and end with the living God. And so if equity is used in the name of God, then it's a good thing. If, quote, equity is used in the name of Satan, it's bad. But this is where secularism brings us. We are under the delusion today that you can do right and wrong in the absence of the presence of God. We believe that secularism can be a great blessing for us because it's outside of these religious things that confuse us and mix us up. Remember in the, in the 1700s and the 1600s, really, in the religious wars of Europe, it came, there came the day, and this is what really affected the start of our American political system, there came the day where there were many men that believed that if they could just avoid the religious differences between the, each other, that they could find a greater peace in the 1700s that, were, that had been bound, found in the, 17, in the 1600s. And so a lot of that it was uh, infiltrated, the political thinking, uh, and when did our nation start? Uh, 17, 
1776, 1789 are the great dates of the formation of America. And that's when this thinking was really stirring. And there were many Christians at the time that saw the, saw the, the, the weakness of this and the evil of that kind of thinking. But they were not in a, a, a strong majority. There was probably a majority of the people of that time that thought that. It was kind of the neo-Puritanism of the day. But they were not all the leaders. And so people like Thomas Jefferson and some of the Adams, people like this, the early rulers of our country, uh, many of them were persuaded by these things. And so they wouldn't have appreciated uh, what, uh, what Nathan did here. Nathan was a godly prophet. He represents a... Uh, he represents in his day the godly churchmen. Would that there were more today churchmen who understood some of these things. Now you just can't, just because you're a churchman, you can't go off on the battlefield and rant and rave and say, I know the way of the Lord. You can't do it. You've got to make sure that you understand from the scriptures what is the way of the Lord. You've got to have a, 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 some political understanding in your mind. The Bible says that the men of Issachar, in the Old Testament, says the men of Issachar, were wise. This was in the time when Absalom rebelled against David. The Bible says the men of Issachar could understand, they had an understanding of the times and how to apply their theology to the day in which they lived. And so they're held up uh, for credit for that. And so, uh, so Nathan here, as one of the prophets of God, was, uh, was credited with this whole uh, saving of history for a better way. And so he talks to Bathsheba. Bathsheba talks to Solomon. Solomon remembers. Uh, Nathan then comes in and says the same thing. And uh, the, Solomon, despite the, his feeble nature, despite his weakness, he remembers, he understands, and he makes a new decree that Solomon, his son, uh, would, uh, would rule. And... Uh, uh, we see that in verses 22, 24, and following. Uh, and Nathan says at the end in verse 26, he says, added, regarding Adonijah, uh, he says, But as he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon, has this thing been done by the Lord, by my Lord the king? Uh, and you have not, uh, not told your servant who should sit on the throne, of my Lord the King after him. And so immediately following that, then David uh, David proclaims that Solomon is the king. And uh, we see that, uh, that so one of the things that, that happens is in verse, uh, 20, verse 33, reminds us so much of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Solomon orders that, that uh, I mean, David ordered that Solomon, my son, shall ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. Now the... The Israelites were not great horsemen like the Mongols or like some of the people here in the Southwest or the, the Midwest who have uh, horse farms and uh, uh, raise Arabians and fancy horses and these kinds of things. Uh, but the one, the, they, they, did t they did get around uh, sometimes on uh, donkeys and mules. And so that was what Solomon or David refers to here. And it reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? Because our Lord Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a mule or on a, a donkey also. And uh, this is because this, from, from this incident, from, 
from David's life and Solomon's life, this became a tradition that the king would come riding into uh, his kingdom uh, on one of these beasts of burden. And so here David decrees that that should be done with Solomon, and Solomon should be raised up to be king. Now, in the, in the, in the history of Israel, uh, the, greatest, the greatest train track that runs through Israel is the spiritual train track. It runs, from, it runs from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It runs way back to Adam and Eve. And when they, after they fell and God raised them up again, they had a son, Seth, who became a covenant child, uh, a girlfriend against many of the children that resisted the covenant. Uh, and so most of the scriptures focus on that spiritual track, which ultimately ends up uh, encountering or taking Jesus on board after he was born of Mary and Joseph in Palestine. But there's another track that runs through the scriptures also, and that's the track of culture, the track of the six days. There's, there are two tracks, the six-day tra track and the seventh-day track. And a couple times in the Bible, these two tracks come together. Very often, they're way far apart. Today, I would say they're far apart. The church is just so far, uh, so far from being the cultural magnet that it could be. But in this day, with David and Solomon, the cultural richness of Israel reached its ascendancy. And they became the most powerful country in the Middle East at that time for a short time. And uh, the other kings in the area, they came in and they, they, they showered gifts upon uh, David and Solomon. Some of these wives that brought them down came in this way. And so this chapter uh, takes us from almost the height, the pinnacle, actually Solomon and his accomplishments were the pinnacle of the second track or the first track of the of the, the, the cultural track, the track that has to do with the politics and that sort of thing. This this uh, chapter and this book takes us uh, and, and shows us that track and how it developed and all the glory of it. But ultimately, it shows us the failure of that track without Christ. And ultimately, uh, all the history here runs toward a, a more wonderful and glorious destination, namely the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the fact that he is he's the better king. He's a better king than Solomon. He's a better king than David. He's, uh, he's uh, David, the son of David, he's called. So he's linked directly to this, to the high politics of David and Solomon. And yet he's even better because his spirit is better. His heart is better. His love of his heavenly father is better. It's 100% pure. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we need to pass through the judgment. We can't have only an approximation of righteousness. We can't have all, only partial forgiveness. We must have it all. And we have it all in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our uh, blessing. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might appreciate this holy history, that we might see it in our own day and in our own minds, that we might appreciate the, the co-mixture of the seventh-day blessings of sanctification with the six days of investigation of the creation 
and the development of it as thou didst command us in Genesis 1, uh, 28. We pray in, even in these stories that we might see something of the magic of these things. And we pray for our day where, there, where men glory so much, whether it's in their football or their power, their military power. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would see that any accomplishment of man is embellished by the love of God. We pray for that blessing in our day, O Lord. We pray for that blessing in our own lives. Bless us, O Lord, with the insights of faith, with the brilliance of thy name. And bless us that we might walk in thy ways. In his name we pray, amen.